Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine, broadcasting from the Oilfield Expert Studios. Oilfield Experts, where you get the right products right now. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. Welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio. I'm Robert Rapier, Senior Contributor for Forbes, sitting in for Kim Bellotto. My guest today, Robert Bryce, is an old friend of mine. Robert is a best-selling author, a journalist, a documentary filmmaker, host of the Power Hungry podcast, and the author of a popular substack on energy, power, innovation, and politics. He has been covering the energy sector for over 30 years, stirring up controversy at times for his views. Let me tell you, if you need a guy to give a keynote talk on energy, Robert Bryce is the guy. He's done over 450 invited or keynote lectures, and I've been in the audience for several of them. Robert, thanks so much for joining us today. Always happy to be with you, Robert. Uh, fellow Oklahoman, we didn't mention that. You're from nope. Hugo, I'm from Tulsa, so we are we are uh, blood brothers from Oklahoma. Right. Right. We, uh, our, our roots run deep. I, you know, I, I spoke to Robert a few days ago and I said, you know, we could probably fill this whole segment just, you know, chatting about energy. Cause you know, we do get on the phone sometimes and we talk about energy issues. So uh, the first thing I'd like to do is sort of introduce you to listeners who may not know who you are. I mean, you, you're been very, very successful covering the energy industry for a long time. And I'm sure a lot of listeners do know who you are, but uh, why don't you take a minute to take us a little bit through your career here? Sure. Well, okay. Uh, I'll do it in, in in a minute or less. Um, first, first things first. I'm a proud father and husband. Um, my wife Lauren and I've been married 37 years. We have three great kids, Mary, Michael, and Jacob, and they're all above average. And I'm incredibly proud of them. So, uh, my family is my first priority. My career, uh, I've had some success, modest success. I've written six books. Uh, my latest is called A Question of Power: Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. My first book was on Enron more than 20 years ago now, and I'm still, in fact, writing about Enron somehow in one shape or another because Enron was such an in influential and important company and what they did. Um, but yes, I'm going to publish one documentary or uh, produce one documentary. I'm about to uh, release another one called Juice, Power, Politics, and the Grid. That'll be out in the first quarter of 2024. I'm the host of the Power Hungry podcast. I, and you know, in summary, I, I consider myself incredibly lucky. I'm, I'm I'm just stupidly lucky and very grateful for what I you know am able to do. I write about think about, talk about the energy business, energy and power sectors, and count myself incredibly lucky to be able to do so. Uh, it's my purpose and my passion. So I'll stop there. Yeah, no, uh, I think you're being a little bit modest. Uh, you, you're you a very, very good public speaker. You're a very good communicator. And, you know, I think that's why you've been so successful. You can communicate your ideas in a, uh, a, a very, you know, layman sort of way to people. You, you don't, you know, you speak like a common man on the street to uh, people about complex issues. Well, that, thank you. That's very kind. I, you know, look, that's what I strive to do. And when I write, when I talk, I think about my mother, my late mother, who um, Anne Mahoney Bryce, she was born and raised in Enid, Oklahoma. Um, and I think about her when I write, you know, if I want to make her understand it the first time in, in talking about energy and powers that the public doesn't understand these, com these, these concepts, it's a difficult thing to understand. So I'm, I'm, and I really work to make the numbers mean something and to try and uh, help the the general public understand these issues by making them as simple as I can. Because the, the, one of the problems, and you know, people say, "Well, why does the oil and gas industry? Why aren't they better at doing what they're doing?" Well, they're busy doing their own business, right? It isn't their job to explain what they do, um, or the coal industry or in, nuclear industry. They're all, you know, all of them say, "Oh, they're terrible communicators." Well, that may be, but whatever the case, I'm you know, you and I both share a passion for trying to get the public, help the public understand 
why these issues are so important and why the ignorance of them is so dangerous. You know, it's funny because I, I don't think I've ever heard you tell that story before, but it's it's the same for me. People ask me, why how, why is your writing style and your communication style the way it is? And I, I always say, I imagine I'm communicating to my parents. My dad was a mechanic and a rancher. My mom was a secretary. And I imagine that I'm explaining these issues to them. Right. Um, so, you know, you, you can't talk, you know, too, too complicated. It's just got to be, you know, straightforward, plain language. And, uh, you know, so the, the uh, average person on the street can understand what you're, what you're saying. And, and this is, and I, well, let's, yeah, it's interesting that you talk about it in the same way, because, you know, I think that maybe it's partly being from Oklahoma, right? We're born modest. You can't be, you know, you've got, you know, where you're from, but also so much of the, the, the hoodwinking of the American public by, and I, you know, I've I've just gotten to a point where I'm totally fed up with these in these climate-focused NGOs, Robert, because I think they are in fact a dangerous force in America, dangerous, unaccountable force, and they are succeeding in the policy circles and among policymakers because the ignorance of energy and power is so 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 profound. So it's incumbent on me, and it's incumbent on you. We have to bust our asses to make these things relevant, to make help the public understand the danger that we face if we undermine these our most important energy and power systems. Right, and I definitely want to get into that more because um, I I know that you have tangled with the renewable in, energy industry. Um, you know, I think they consider you a, a bad guy. Um, That's okay. They don't like me. I don't like them back. I'm just fine with that. I no problem with that. I've seen how these companies operate. I've seen if the if the oil and gas industry had operated in rural America the way the wind industry does, it would be front page news in the New York Times. But of course, you know the way the wind is just suing small towns, suing individuals, suing uh, the counties like Madison County, Iowa. Why won't the New York Times cover that? Because it's simple. It doesn't fit the narrative. So I'm going to cover it and I'm going to write it and I'm going to call them out because it's not about climate. It's about money. And it's always been about money. Yeah. And for, for listeners who don't know, I'd, I'd point out, you've got solar panels on your house. So you're not anti-renewable. Um, and I've had to point this out many, many times over the years. People will, you know, I, I got put on an enemies list for ethanol once. And I said, I'm not anti-ethanol. I'm anti-misinformation and anti-bad science and so forth. And sometimes that runs afoul of uh, their objectives. And, and that's when, you know, you become the bad guy. Uh, you're you're saying something that the lobbyists don't like. Well, you stand in a way in the way of the money, and that was why our, you know you did some outstanding coverage on the, all the issues on biofuels in general. But you know, corn ethanol, wood, you know, wood chip ethanol. Where is that cellulosic ethanol, by the way, that Congress mandated so many years ago? It's nowhere because it was never going to work, and you just kept pounding on that. And so, you know, I admired that tenacity. It was like, but you stood in the way of the money, and that's why you know. You know, it's less now. A few years ago, they, you know, these outfits would attack me more. But now I'm on my own. I'm independent. I've been independent for a long time, going on five years now. What are they going to say? I'm, I'm reporting the facts, and you know, it's part of why I'm motivated to maintain the renewable rejection database, which I hope we can talk about. Let's get into that. T sure. Tell me about it. Well, so I, I've, I'd said I've written six books, and so I was about to publish my fourth book, Power Hungry, back in 2010. And right as we were going to press, I was I was making some of the final edits, and I got an email just over the transom from a guy named Charlie Porter in King City, Missouri. He trained quarter horses, raised and trained quarter horses, and he'd had wind turbines built near his home a few a uh, few months earlier. And he was a vocal critic, and he was pointing out 
his family couldn't sleep. They had trouble with their getting reception on their television. They had all this noise that was suddenly from these wind turbines that was was disturbing him and 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 really hurting the value of his property. And he was raising a massive stink about it. Well, that led me to you know do more reporting and find out. Well, in fact, this has happened all over the world where people have been had wind turbines built near their homes and this noise pollution inundating their homes. Many of them were dr being driven out of their houses, and the wind industry was like, "Oh, this isn't a problem." They've been trying to maintain that ever since. Well. That began my reporting on what is happening on the ground in rural America. And so in, in 2015, I became very systematic in cataloging and documenting all the rejections and restrictions on wind energy. And then I added solar energy a couple of years later. And what's the punchline? On my website, robertbryce.com, you can look at the Renewable Rejection Database. To date, since 2015, there have been over 600 rejections and restrictions of wind or solar in the United States. And one of the latest ones was in Harvey County, Kansas, just a couple of days ago. Uh, rural communities from Maine to Hawaii are saying, we don't want these massive wind turbines. We don't want these massive square miles of solar panels in our neighborhoods. Put them somewhere the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. We don't want them here. Yeah, that's um, I, I don't think a lot of people think about that because a lot of people don't have a wind turbine in their backyard and they don't think about the, the sound and so forth. And um, I mean, wh where do you think the industry's headed in um, the, the wind industry? You think it's going to be pushed offshore? Well, <laughs> if it does, I hope their boat sinks and all of them, <laughs> because the only thing dumber than onshore wind energy, Robert, is offshore wind energy. I I, I think these, the, the you know, this is junk energy. It is. It requires too much land. It, the power density is is too low, and therefore the, the low power density means high resource intensity. The offshore wind industry is struggling mightily. I think it's not going. I think that's just simply almost all of it's going to fail in the United States. Um, that's been what we've seen just in the last few months. Numerous examples of companies uh, bailing out of contracts they had with states. Um, Orsted being among the latest, um, just saying this is too expensive, and this is not. It shouldn't surprise anyone. But I think the wind industry overall, and as well as the renewable energy industry, all the alt energy companies, as well as I will say the nuclear sector, all facing enormous friction. Part of it is supply chains, but one of the key factors is high interest rates. And so um, these these entities are struggling. I wrote about it just recently on my Substack, robertbryce.substack.com, um, and I point I, I called it it was called the alt energy bloodbath in ten charts. And I just you just used the stock price charts year to date for you know a bunch of these alt energy companies the wind energy company the uh, one of the companies that makes uh, electrolyzers for for uh, hydrogen they're all just getting killed in the marketplace because their their businesses aren't viable yeah believe me i know very well cuz i've i've got a couple of holdings in some of the um some of the solar sector um yeah. you know the solar sector's done pretty well over the years but this year especially high interest rates have sort of killed a lot of those projects i mean uh, Next Era has taken a bath. You know, a lot of yeah. the utilities that are incorporating a lot of renewables have taken a bath because these high interest rates have really been a a killer. Um, I think solar. I think solar. Just one last point on that. Solar is going to do better than wind, and one of the main reasons is it's higher. It's uh, it, the power density of solar is ten x that of wind. Power density of solar roughly ten watts per square meter. The power density of wind energy is one watt per square meter. And I will defend those numbers all day long. Uh, that's it, put it onshore, offshore. It's one watt per square meter. Period. Yeah, and I've said the same thing. I, you know, I wrote an article in 2007. And I said the future is solar, and that's the way I saw it. I saw, you know, because there's so many rooftops and so forth. There's so much land out there that can be utilized that's not being utilized for solar power. And uh, you know, wind is still ahead, but solar's on a trajectory to pass wind eventually. Yeah, um, I don't, I don't doubt, doubt that at all. But I'll take issue with what you just said. And you know, you're from ag. You know, you lived in an ag environment, and Hugo. 
I lived in Tulsa, but not far from ag. And I spend a lot of time in rural America. We're in November and March. I was in Christiana, Wisconsin, a small farming community about 25 miles southeast of Madison. They're fighting tooth and nail against a project that would cover eight square miles of some of the best farmland in Wisconsin and therefore some of the best farmland in the world with solar panels. And they're saying, no way, we don't want this here. Are you kidding? This will kill our little town. So this idea there's a lot of unused land, I disagree. All right, let's take a quick break right there and we'll continue that discussion after the break. We'll be right back with Robert Bryce on In the Oil Patch Radio. Attention small and medium-sized business owners. Are you feeling overwhelmed with back office tasks like payroll, workers' compensation, federal regulations, safety laws, employment standards, and benefits? Don't worry. Unique HR has your back. For over 30 years, our team of qualified professionals has been providing people-centered solutions to help businesses like yours navigate the heavy burden of running a business and managing their workforce. We're the PEO with a pulse, and we are just a phone call away. Call us today at 361-852-6392. Unique HR, the partner you can trust. Welcome back to In the Old Patch Radio. I'm Robert Rapier with this week's guest, Robert Bryce. Robert, before the break, we were talking about unused land and solar panels, and you were talking right. about, you know, the farmland that was potentially going to be used. And particularly, I'm referring to rooftops, because I've, I've done the calculations before. There are there are enough rooftops in the U.S. that uh, you could supply a tremendous amount of solar power just utilizing, you know, the, the available rooftops. Um, and, and that's where I think the lowest hanging fruit is. Um, you know, they're, they're in my neighborhood here in Phoenix, there are a lot of solar panels on the houses here. I was in Hawaii before, and it was even more common there. Um, now, the, the the electric utilities there did tell me that they had issues incorporating all that into the grid. I, I talked to uh, Hawaii Electric multiple times, and they assured me that it's not just, it, it's, it's not just an issue, um, you know, to try to keep like uh, to try to keep solar power off the grid, they truly have issues. You know, the 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 uh, clouds come by and suddenly you don't have as much uh, sun and they can't respond quickly. And right. I think they're working those issues out over time. But I, that's kind of where I see the future. I see a lot of low hanging fruit. I see, uh, you know, well, a lot you, of desert you areas. Twin, you tra- and you twin solar with batteries. And I think that that that's that has a lot of potential. And we're seeing a lot of growth in that, you know, the twinning of solar and batteries. Uh, because that helps level out, level out some of those peaks and valleys, as you say, with you know cloud cover and the rest of it. But all that all of this has to be paid for, and that's the key. And so I have rooftop solar, but you know the 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 the, the, the there there are a lot of class issues here when we talk about rooftop solar. So I can roll my meter backwards. Effectively, that's what I do. I live in Austin, but a third of the cost of my solar panels was paid by the city, and then I got a big tax break as well. So. Great for me. And I'm, you know, look, I'm doing okay in my career. I'm not, you know, I'm not a poor man. I'm not a rich man. I'm doing okay. But what about the star the the barista at Starbucks? What about the first grade teacher across the street who who rents? That solar doesn't help them. And the balancing costs, which is the key issue here, after solar reaches a certain penetration into the overall mix in the grid, its value starts to decline. So we're seeing this particularly in California, where electricity rates overall have increased at a rate three times faster than the rest of the U.S. since 2008, when Arnold Schwarzenegger mandated the use of renewables by the state's utility. So, you know, I agree, solar is going to grow, but who's going to pay? And that's the key issue. And no one really wants to talk about it. Well, I will. Right. So how long have you had your solar panels on your house? And what, what Have you had any issues with them? Mm, I've had two different systems. Um 
the first system. So I'm, I, you know, look, I'm opposed to energy. I'm opposed to all subsidies, Robert, unless I'm getting them. Well, <laughs> I've had my hand out here, right? So I got three different subsidies for my existing system. I got the federal tax credit. I got the city to pay a third of the cost. And then the city is paying me above market rates for the cost of the power that I generate. So that's three different, three different handouts. Right. But I also got, I think in the first system that I had, which was four kilowatts, I think they paid half of the cost the city did. But I had problems with the inverter. The inverter went out, I think, twice. Well, if I'd had to pay for that inverter, it would have been thousands of dollars. Now, the new panels that I have have onboard inverters on each panel. So that hasn't been an issue. But my my little the, the box that it, it communicates that it's made by Enphase doesn't work now. And I don't know why. I don't whatever happened. But you know, it's but but it's been a good deal for me on a cash on cash basis. I'm making seven or eight percent. That's pretty good. You know, it's before tax. Yeah. Yeah, so in phase, an inverter company, Solar Edge, is one yeah. that uh, I held in my portfolio, and I still do. But it's it's taken a beating over the last uh, yeah. And in phase, in phase has as well. Yeah, right. Um, so how do you see all this playing out? I mean, you've got your finger on the pulse of this industry, and and you can see what's going on. And and I mean, where where do you see wind and solar going over the next you know one or two decades? Well, let's zoom out if you don't mind, because I, you know, I, I, I think we agree solar is going to grow. I think wind is going to continue to be challenged dramatically because of the land use issues, and further that the best wind energy sites have already been taken. Right? You know, this is what happens in energy any resource play. You get the best locations first, right? That's where you put your stuff. So now the industry is facing increasing friction, all not just in the U.S. and but all around the world. And in addition to the issue of just the siting itself, there are massive challenges that are, are in, my, in my view, are insurmountable when it comes to high-voltage transmission lines. You just can't build them. You think it's hard to build pipelines, build, try and build them 200 feet in the air. So those are the challenges on solar and wind. But I think you know it's not just the U.S. The same issues are, are at play in Europe, all across Europe. And so you know if we zoom out, I think the broad story that we've been seeing is that hydrocarbons are here to stay. The idea of net zero, the rest of it, this is all a, a, a lot of hype and a lot of happy talk. It's simply not going to happen. Coal demand this year will set a, another new record, 8.4 billion tons, because of, of the, the growth in the global economy and so many people living in energy poverty. And they're not using you know, all this, oh, wind and solar are cheaper. Well, then why isn't India, why is India building coal-fired power plants? Why aren't they just building wind and solar? Are they stupid? I don't think they are. Yeah, I mean, no, it comes down to price for a lot of the developing sure. countries. I mean, China is still building coal-fired power plants. Their coal consumption is continuing to increase. Um, you know, a lot of people point to their renewables. Yes, China is growing renewables uh, like mad, but, you know, they're trying to lift, you know, a billion people plus from, uh, you know, poverty into middle class. And that takes yeah. a lot of energy. And that's, you know, I, they, they're increasing consumption across the board, you know, every, every, every category, you know, wind, solar, nuclear, natural gas, oil, everything. And, and their hydro isn't doing as well as they expected. So they're burning more coal. Uh, John Kemp at Reuters reported on this just the other day, coal demand in China, coal imports, all setting new records. So what about electric vehicles? Um, are you seeing a lot in Austin? I mean, I'm, I'm seeing quite a few more here in, uh, yeah. in Phoenix. Um, where, where is that headed? Well, uh, so you, my my quick reply is that the electric vehicle is the next big thing, and it always will be. So, <laughs> you know, I'm a skeptic. Call me a skeptic. And I live in Austin. Excuse me. Just yesterday, I went uh, on a drive with my daughter, Mary, and we drove out to the new Tesla factory, which is just out here southeast of town. 
it is a massive, massive building. I mean, just enormous. Um, but it's a it's a huge bet on a very few commodities: nickel, lithium, copper, cobalt. You know, and the ability to to produce not just a, a few hundred or thousand batteries, but billions and trillions of batteries. And there are constraints on all of those supply systems. So, you know, this I, the electric vehicle has been in the marketplace now for over a century. I could point you to a, a news clip from the Los Angeles Times in 1901 that says, oh, you know, the electric vehicle is getting cheaper and pretty soon it's going to take over. In 1915, the Washington Post saying, yeah, the pretty soon middle class motorists are going to be able to buy an electric vehicle. This is not a new technology. It's a very old technology and the, the constraints and the limits on that technology are very clear and we're already seeing uh the downturn in the electric vehicle market where the major automakers are saying hmm we're going to slow down here because we don't see the demand and i don't either I, I think that the the consuming public is looking at this and saying this isn't a car for me all right let's take a quick break right there and we'll continue that discussion after the break we'll be right back with robert bryce on in the oil patch radio Hey, when you're in business, you have to make a lot of tough choices. So let's talk about an easy one, your workers' comp coverage. If you're a propane or butane dealer or operator, you need to join the Lone Star Energy Safety Group through Texas Mutual Insurance Company. As a member, you'll automatically get a discount on your premium, plus you can earn double dividends that'll go straight into your pocket. It's the easiest decision you'll ever make. Find out more at texasmutual.com slash Lone Star Energy. Welcome back to In the Old Patch Radio. I'm Robert Rapier with this week's guest, Robert Bryce. Robert, before the break, we were talking about electric vehicles, and uh, you know, you were talking about it being the, the next big thing. And that's that's the thing I'd always said about uh, you know cellulosic ethanol, for instance. It was it was always going to be the next big thing. And um, the only difference is, I we do see electric vehicles out there. We see uh, you know a lot of the electric vehicle companies' share price rising and people having sure. great expectations. Where cellulose ethanol, you know, never, I mean, I, I told people before, you know, we had a couple of operating plants in the U.S. in 1920, but they just weren't commercially viable. Right. Um, so, yeah, we're potentially trading. I, I've always said we don't want to trade, uh, you know, dependence on something that is supplied by OPEC for dependence on something, you know, some rare minerals that's supplied by China. So we don't want to get into that situation. Um but and yet, yeah, and yet I, that's exactly and yet that's exactly what's happening. I mean, this is what you look at. You know, one particular uh, uh, issue in the supply chain: neodymium iron boron magnets. These are the high strength, or what's called high coercivity magnets, that are used in electric vehicles. Almost all of them, and they are doped with terbium and dysprosium. Well, uh, China controls ninety percent of the global market for those. Uh, those magnets, and they control 100% of the supply of dysprosium and terbium, which are rare earth elements. So why in the name of Peter, Paul, and Mary would the United States, at a time when we know China is not our friend, cede our critical supply chains to the Chinese? I mean, it just makes no sense, Robert. Why, why is Elon Musk building his next new factory in Shanghai? Well, duh. I mean, he's not stupid. He didn't get to be that rich by being a dumbass. He's building it there because he understands what the supply chain issues are. So it's just, you know, the 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 again, the hype over these issues has just been staggering. And I wanted to point out one other quick thing because I wrote about this on my Substack, robertbryce.substack.com, and I wrote about it last uh, in in uh, in uh, in, in uh, October. It was yeah that. Um, this is the key part that right before I published the piece in the uh, 
uh, in Cal Berkeley, they published a study that found that uh, during our time period, they studied, which was uh, from a 10-year period, half of all EVs went to the 10 most democratic counties in America, and about one-third went to the top 5%. You Half of your market is in 10 counties or 20 counties? I mean, that was it. It's the most Democratic counties in California. Travis County here in Austin, where I live, was one of the top counties. Who did the market research here? I mean, these automakers, you think they're sophisticated and they didn't understand how limited the market is for the product that they're selling and that they were going to invest tens, have invested already tens of billions of dollars for a very, very narrow slice of the overall consuming market. I look back at it and I just think this is one of the the biggest miscalculations of the modern era in terms of consumer behavior. Right. And you you alluded to the battery situation. You know, China has a stranglehold on the batteries. Uh, you know, batteries are going to come from China. And ultimately, the, um, you know, the lithium supply is going to come from South America. Um, yeah. You know, that's where all the lithium's at. And I... Um, I wrote an article for Forbes, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and I said, you know, the last thing we need to do is trade out dependence on OPEC for something like OLEC, the Organization of Lithium Exporting Countries, yeah. because that's what they will ultimately do. You know, when if all the lithium supply is coming from there, you know, they can really uh, clamp down on supplies and, and, you know, charge us whatever they want. Sure. So, you know, the, and, and the IEA has documented this. And, uh, you know, the IEA has become a very political, the International Energy Agency has become a very political entity, right? Where just they put out a report recently with Fadi Barol saying, oh, you know, the oil and gas industry effectively needs to just go out of business and quit selling hydrocarbons. And I just thought, what is this about? But they published a very sober report on critical minerals. And they, and they talk about these very same things. It's not just the batteries themselves. It's not just the magnets. It's the supply of the critical metals, copper, nickel, uh, neodymium, you know, uh, which is another uh, rare earth. But, you know, these are all now effectively controlled by China and the Chinese refiners. And so this idea that we're all of this alt energy junk and a lot of it is just junk depends directly on China. And so there's no then there's no way that the United States in the near term can do anything to ramp up production anywhere near the levels that are going to be required. Right. OK, so. Let's take a quick break. And after the sure. break, I want to I want to get into climate change and the energy transition and how you see that playing out. So you bet. we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Robert Bryce on In the Old Patch Radio. Are you a business owner feeling overwhelmed where to begin your business's online presence? Maybe you've spent thousands of dollars in the past just to be highly disappointed with the results. We understand because we were once you. Since then, we decided to hire the very best experts to help us and you. Let us send you our business profile that will quickly show you your Google business rankings in these five areas. Reputation, ratings online, website, advertising and social media, and search engine optimization. All of these areas really affect how Google ranks your entire listing. So if ranking on page one is your goal, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com slash business profile. We'll be in contact with you within 24 hours. Once again, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com. That's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com slash business profile. Start dealing with a company you can trust and always find. Welcome back to In the Old Patch Radio. I'm Robert Rapier with my guest, Robert Bryce. So, Robert, we talked a lot about renewables. Um, let's talk about, you know, if if you know you don't like the way the renewable industry is 
operating their business. What about climate change? You know, what what are we going to do about that? I mean, isn't that the whole point here? And uh, you know, what what other alternatives do we have here to to mitigate this? So so give me your thoughts on climate change, and then you know what sure. what are we going to do? Well, first, so there is no way, no how, can't happen, won't happen, uh, that renewables are going to somehow save us from climate change. And yet we have seen this kind of, I call it renewable energy fetishism, that somehow every renewable project is great because it's renewable. Well, just because it's renewable, as as my friend Jesse Osabella said, just solar and wind may be renewable, but they are not green. So what should we be doing? Well, I've been saying the same thing now for 15 years, natural gas to nuclear. This is the way forward. If we want to reduce emissions and and attack the issue at scale, then we need to be looking at at the two technologies, two sources that are scalable, low carbon, uh, very well developed, and, and, and can be deployed around the world in relatively short order, natural gas and nuclear. Now, that's not going to be easy. It's not going to be cheap, and it's not going to be, it's not going to be fast. But if we're going to attempt to make a significant dent in CO2 emissions, and that I, I do mean if we are going to, because I don't see any commitment globally that this is really going to happen, that is the way forward. And I've been very clear on that. So what do, what's my issue? How do I define my position on climate change? Climate change is a concern. It is not our only concern. We have to balance our action on climate change, our spending on action on climate change against and balance that against the other needs in our society, in particular on affordability, resilience, and reliability. We cannot let our energy and power systems fail. That is a death, that is a date with suicide. And yet we're flirting with this. I wrote a piece on my Substack just in the last couple of days about this very thing. It last Christmas, the gas, natural gas system in New York City almost failed. If it had failed, the calamity in that city would have been beyond anything any of us have ever imagined. They would have to depopulate New York for months at a time. I mean, so we, we, this this renewable fetishism and climatism, I think, is very dangerous, and I'm calling it out because I do think it is a it is a society killing uh, a, a push that is being made by these NGOs like the Sierra Club in RDC, and they're operating on budgets that are enormous and they are incredibly influential. But I think they're incredibly dangerous. Yeah, I always tell people that. Um... You know, there's there's what I would like to happen, what I really think is going to happen. And I have to right. I have to talk about what I really think is going to happen. And people misunderstand that sometimes and say, well, you know, we should go all renewables. And I said, yeah. but the reality is we're not. Well, so uh, tell me just briefly, I mean, I know it's your show, but I mean, what, what do you think is going to happen? What do you what's your read on where we are? So uh, I think I think carbon emissions are going to continue to go up. Um, I think the the lowest hanging fruit in the world is China's coal fired power plants. And if whatever we could do to stop that and and get them to shut those down and, and, you know, nuclear power is a a good option for them. I mean, it's firm power and, and natural gas is a good option for them. But I mean, I think I think nuclear power is the better option for them. Uh, get those coal-fired power plants shut down. Because if you look at the major drivers of uh, carbon dioxide emissions over the past 50 years, it's all in Asia Pacific. Yeah. Um, U.S. emissions have been very flat over the last 50 years. And in Asia Pacific, you know, they now emit more carbon dioxide than uh, your, the EU and the U.S. They, they emit three times what the right. EU and U.S. combined emit. So, you know, I, I think a lot of people don't realize that. So whenever we are punishing ourselves here, I mean, in fairness, we do have legacy emissions in the atmosphere more than any other country, the United States. 
but China's going to pass us in this decade. I mean, yeah. China's on a very rapid trajectory up, and we're on a flat trajectory. We've actually been, been declined somewhat in the last 15 years as natural gas has come in and displaced coal-fired power. So, right. um, you know, we've, we've actually gone down. We, You know, a few years ago, we had the largest decline over the past decade of any other major country in the world. Yeah. And it's primarily because of natural gas, but it's also because of renewables. Renewables yeah. had made a the, the second largest impact, but the largest was, uh, you know, natural gas displacing coal. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think a lot of countries like China will continue to build out renewable capacity. But the problem is overall energy demand continues to increase. Right. And renewables are not even scaling up fast enough to meet the the delta between energy demand from year to year. And that's yeah. I see that as a big problem. So, you know, a lot of it is is being unrealistic. You know, I, I, I know a lot of uh, environmentalists disagreed with my take on the Keystone XL pipeline, but I'm like you. I'm like I'm looking down the road and I'm thinking, all right, what is most likely? What is most yeah. likely is in you know five or ten years, we're probably going to need that oil, and um, if we don't get that oil from there, we're going to go get it from OPEC or from uh, you know Venezuela, and uh, you know that's that's the way I see it. So you say, why not build the Keystone Pipeline you, you, or the Keystone XL, the extension? I mean, Keystone Pipeline exists, but the right. the XL. Uh, why not build that? Why not let a private company fund that, spend uh, money employing Americans and buying, you know, goods and services and it'd be good for the economy? And then if you truly believe you don't need it down the road, well, a private company took a risk and it didn't work out. But if you get down the road and you do need it, it's like you said, you know, you're you're handicapping yourself in the future. Um, you know, you're, you're really cutting yourself off um, at the knees and and trying to make sure that you've got enough energy in the future. And that's, that's always my thing. You know, you don't want to get to the future and say, oops, um, you know, we, uh, we should have forecast that perhaps, you know, we might've needed this energy. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I agree. And, and, you know, and especially now in the wake of the Russia Ukraine war that it's very clear. And I think, especially now, even since October 7th, you know, the, the Israeli gas that was going to Egypt to be liquefied and sent to Europe is no, is, is out of the market. So not only, you know, and this is 50 years after the Arab oil embargo, right? So, you know, the first Yom Kippur war, now we're the second Yom Kippur, yeah, second October war. And what do we see in the wake of this one? Well, the first one 50 years ago underscored the importance of oil. This one is underscoring the importance of natural gas and that U.S. gas now, gas LNG exports to, the, to Europe, two thirds of U.S. LNG exports now are going to Europe. And that's critical, a critical supply line for them given that Russian gas is out of the market. So, you know, a lot of this cop stuff now and, you know, the talk about CO2 emissions, it's taking a far distant backseat to energy security. And I saw that myself when I was in Japan earlier this year, which happy to talk about that if you like. But, you know, energy security is going to trump concerns about climate change every time, every, every time. Okay, let's take a quick break, and we'll get into that after, in, in our final segment here. I want to ask you about that uh, trip to Japan, and sure. and also, you know, we'll talk about the oil industry. We'll drill down a little bit more there. So uh, awesome. take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Robert Bryce on In the Oil Patch Radio. 
In the oil and gas industries, you don't just need a workers' comp provider. You need a workers' comp provider who understands your business. That's Texas Mutual Insurance Company. At Texas Mutual, they've created the Texas Oil and Gas Association Safety Group exclusively for businesses involved with exploration and production. That means you'll have access to information and safety resources that fit the way you work. But the advantages don't stop there. As a safety group member, you'll receive a premium discount on your workers' comp. Plus, you can qualify for double dividends. You heard that right. Members can earn an additional dividend on top of the one you receive as a policyholder. It's all part of Texas Mutual's commitment to working as a partner with the businesses that keep our state running. Texas Mutual and the Texas Oil and Gas Association, two great organizations that are even better together. To see if you qualify to become a safety group member, go to TexasMutual.com slash TXOGA. Welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio. I'm Robert Rapier with my guest, Robert Bryce. Robert, for the break, you mentioned trip to Japan that you had taken. Uh, tell, yeah. tell us about that. Well, again, I, you know, I said at the top, I'm incredibly lucky, and I am. I mean, I just count my blessings every day. I mean, I'm just so grateful for what I'm able to do. And I went I went with a, on a, a trip that was sponsored um, uh, and with about six or eight other people, and we went to Fukushima Daiichi, which was a, a remarkable experience in and of itself, to see the nuclear plant and what had happened there and you know, I'm still pro-nuclear, but it was a very sobering experience. But the key point here that that, that I took away from my trip, and I wrote about this again on my Substack, was that in, in we met with top officials from the government, from industry, and, and in each of those meetings, I asked them, well, what about climate change? What about the Kyoto Protocol? And in every meeting, every official said, yeah, well, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna focus on energy security first. This is our first. This and this is this is in the country that is very homogeneous. Very well aligned. Everyone in Japan, they're concerned about other Japanese, right? They're very, you know, one all for one and one for all. This is very much the Japanese kind of ethos. And in every meeting, they said, we're going to do what we have to do to assure low-cost electricity. And so what is happening in Japan? Yes, they've restarted 10 of their nuclear reactors. It might be 11 now. I've got to need to double check. But they're building a coal-fired power plant on Tokyo Bay. Right. An ultra super critical TEPCO, Tokyo Electric, the company that owns Fukushima Daiichi, is now finishing an, a, an ultra super critical coal plant on Tokyo Bay. And they're also there's another utility building another coal fired power plant, and they're also building five gigawatts of new gas fired power plants. So, energy reality, energy realism is trumping any concern about climate change in Japan. Right. And the thing I've always said about nuclear power is this: it, <laughs> it is a very very valuable tool for being able to get uh, carbon emissions down. However, um, when you have a an energy source that can have a really high impact event, like a Chernobyl or like sure. Fukushima, you better be sure that you have got fail safe designs. Yeah. And when I say fail safe designs, I mean a design that when you go into a failure mode, it has to fail in a safe way. Yeah. And the the example I always give is of a fuse. You know, a fuse, an electric circuit, fuse burns out, electricity stops. You're in a safe condition. And um, although I'm very, very pro-nuclear power, the, the industry has got to be able to assure the public that a Fukushima is not possible because, yeah. you know, we've got a nuclear plant here in Phoenix. And if you told me, you know, I've got an hour to clear out forever out of my house, that would be devastating, you know, to to have an entire population just have to get up and go. So, right. uh, you know, that's the biggest thing about nuclear. You, you've got to, you know, you got to be working on those designs to make sure there's no possibility this thing can melt down and cause a mass evacuation. Yeah, agreed. Ab absolutely agreed. And but I'll say this, and just since we're, we talked about evacuation, and this was one of the things that I saw and was really um, 
haunting in at Fukushima Daiichi and is that the fear of radiation and this is true around the world the fear of nuclear radiation is far more dangerous than the radiation itself and the right. public has been attuned to this claim these claim there's no safe levels of radiation as low as as, as reasonably achievable alara is the is the 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 measurement that the industry has to, uh, to go against, well, it's unachievable. And that's one right. of the reasons why our nuclear has become so expensive. It's because of this insane fear of radiation when we're surrounded by radiation all the time. But the, the quick point on that, in Fukushima Prefecture, they evacuated almost everyone from the region around the power plant. Well, more people died because they were displaced than died of radiation. There were no people. There were two people who died at Fukushima Daiichi. There were two workers who drowned at the plant. Right. No one died of radiation from Fukushima Daiichi. So the, the fear of radiation is worse than the radiation itself. And so I agree with your point about the catastrophic accidents, but even in a catastrophic accident, there were no one died of radiation. So right. it, again, this is insane focus on radiation as a threat is, is one of the biggest problems we face. And there are a lot of issues that nuclear is going to have to overcome, including regulation, capital and fuel. But that's a whole that's another hour or two discussion. Right. Yeah. One thing I always point out to people, I just had a banana for breakfast. Bananas are radioactive yeah. and uh, low level notoriously radioactive. Your your spouse, your spouse is radioactive. Um, so, yeah, but you can't glows, get away from she, radiation. But she glows. My wife glows. And that's must yeah. be why. That's it. <laughs> OK, so we've got about four minutes left. Sure. I want to talk to you about the U.S. oil industry. Uh, yeah. You know, I've, I've written a lot lately. We set a production record in October. Uh, right. We're probably going to set, we'll almost certainly set an annual production record. So, so they're doing some things right. But um, it was 13.2 million barrels a day, right? In, in October. Correct. That was yeah. beat the previous record by 200,000 barrels. And uh, uh, we're going to substantially beat the previous annual record. Uh, and if not for COVID, I think we would have been setting annual records every year. Uh, 2020, we had a big dip down. But yeah, you know, what's, what's the industry doing right? What are they doing wrong? What, where do they need help? You know, Robert, I don't think they need any help. I mean, you know, look at that production record. What does that say to me? It's, and I'd seen those headlines, but, uh, you know, one of the things that I, it, you and I have talked about price. What is the price going to do? And I'm thinking, well, it depends, you know, on what's, you know, how much of the resources available and what is the technology. And so one of the things that has been, that is confounding, right, for me, and I'm bullish on hydrocarbons. I think the supply, we're going to have enough supply, but the price today the price of gasoline today and an inflation-adjusted basis is roughly the same as it was when I was in high school in Tulsa in 1978. It essentially has not changed. So what does that speak to? It speaks to this incredible technological innovation in the oil and gas industry in how they drill and complete their wells. And longer length horizontals, um, you know, better fracking, fracking technology, better, you know, better perfecting the amount of sand, the amount of perfing they do. All these things have, have, have resulted in these just staggering increases in production. Now, will that continue forever? No, of course it cannot. But again, it's an industry and just like the Permian, and I wrote about this just recently, Permian Basin just continually reinvents itself. And it's just amazing to see how that has happened in the United States where this profit motive and innovation combined have led to this incredibly cheap hydrocarbons in the United States that is giving us an advantage over the rest of the world that uh, I think will endure for a, a while to come. Right. I, I think we take the Permian for granted because it's in our backyard, but the yeah. Permian Basin is an amazing, amazing oil field, been producing for more than 100 years and still producing it. 
at record rates, and and that's and and that's where all the capital's going too. Right. I mean, it's, it's just that it's inc- truly amazing that you know I I say we have the rigs, the rednecks, and the rocks, and you know all of those are important, but the rocks and the Permian are just it's the most. I'd bet you a hundred dollars. I made this you know claim before. I'll bet you a hundred dollar bill right now. More wells have been drilled within a hundred miles of Midland, Texas, than anywhere in the world, and it's still the hottest province in the world. Right. Amazing, amazing. So, Robert, we've got one minute left. In the sure. last minute, um, tell uh, listeners where they can find you and, and you know, some some of the things that you've you've written and done. Sure. Well, thanks. I'm, you know, again, flattered to be invited, Robert. You know, good to connect with my old friend from Oklahoma. Um, I'm writing almost exclusively now on Substack, robertbrice.substack.com. Uh, I really enjoy that uh, platform because I can write what I want, when I want, how I want, and particularly use the graphics that I want, which I think are increasingly important. And, and so uh, robertbrice.substack.com is where I, 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 you know, please, by all means, subscribe. It's free. Um, I may go paid sometime, but not not in the near term. Um, also on my website, robertbrice.com, I mentioned the Renewable Rejection Database. That's open, available to the public. You can, you know, check it anytime. All of these rejections are documented. And then NextEra and the rest of these other wind energy companies that are, they have never questioned my numbers. They just, you know, um, and then uh, my my movie uh, is, uh, call out, check out juicethemovie.com. Uh, my new film, Juice, the Power, Politics, and the Grid, will be out in the first quarter. And also um, the Power Hungry podcast, which is easy to find on all your podcast outlets and on YouTube. Oh, and I'm on TikTok, at Power Hungry. How about all that? Right. Well, Robert, thank you for joining me. I, I would reiterate, if somebody needs a, a guest speaker, a keynote speaker, uh, give you a call. I mean, you're a great speaker, great communicator, and uh, I really appreciate you being on the, on the show this week and, and uh, helping educate listeners on, uh, on important energy issues. It's my pleasure. Thank you. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bilotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.